BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Entertainment. Entertainment, yeah. Hello, and welcome back to your hopefully still favorite movie podcast, What Went Wrong, where we discuss what went wrong on your favorite flops, hits, and everything in between. And here with me in the flop sweat, AC-free back house of her home is Lizzie Bassett. Lizzie, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Chris. If you can't tell by the enthusiasm in Chris's voice, we are extremely excited to finally be back. I think I can actually say by popular demand. This is the first time in my life people have asked me to talk more. Um, they didn't technically say that, but they did say that they wanted more episodes. So we are doing it. We are bringing what went wrong back. We're very excited. We have such a treat for you today. <laughs> I just want to say, too, I am very excited, but I'm now a father. So I'm also perpetually Tired. exhausted and feel like <laughs> yeah. I'm going to die. So, yes. Uh, David uh, and I are still child free and living yeah, exactly. large. <laughs> yeah. My wife is uh, dealing with my baby right now, and I am trying to justify why I'm spending two hours on something that will bring our family no money. Um, Chris, so. that's because the people have asked for it, and we are here to deliver <laughs> yeah, it. Exactly. Uh, speaking of it bringing us no money, however, there is a caveat to our return, which is that we will be releasing episodes bi-weekly, meaning we will re- be releasing them every two weeks. We reserve the right to change that. Um, if you decide to, I don't know, start shipping us bars of gold, then maybe we'll do it more than that. (laughs) But for now, it's going to be every other week and we're extremely excited. Uh, and we're just gonna, we're gonna do it forever. We're gonna do it forever, Chris. It's gonna keep going forever, right? It is. I'm very excited. Uh, I thought quickly we could give people a brief life update on each of us. Uh, Lizzie, would you like to start? Uh, sure. Well, David has, uh, built the patio furniture in the backyard and, um, and you bought a house. Yeah. Okay. So I guess I should back up. (laughs) Yeah. We bought a house. Um, and (laughs) Uh, we'll go with this. She has a great new job and she bought a house. My (laughs) wife, Carmela had a baby. Uh, she's very cute and has decided to never let us sleep again. And I had two movies release worm, which is available for rental and will be on Hulu in a couple months. And Moonshot, which in the span of 18 months, we rewrote, shot, released, and were canceled uh, as it was removed from HBO Max. you were not canceled. It was removed from HBO Max. As part of the Discovery merger slash tax write-off. So that was quite the roller coaster. (laughs) It has nothing to do with why we're back with the podcast. Um, (laughs) But maybe we'll cover each of those movies in later episodes. So look forward to that because you have the ultimate insider who dealt with the heartbreak of both of them, the highs and the lows. Uh, And David got a gym membership. So with that, we can (laughs) move on to the movie. Lizzie, this is a new low, and I'm excited to talk about it. It's absolutely the worst one. So before we dive in, I do just want to shout out a couple of people who recommended this film. Benjamin K on Instagram, Jonathan S via our email, and Ross D via email as well recommended this hot steaming pile of trash that we're going to talk about today. It is the worst movie we have watched so far for this podcast, which is saying a lot. Now, Chris, obviously, I want to hear what you thought about this movie. But first, I want to ask you, what do you think of when I say the Schindler's List of science fiction? 
I have no idea how to even respond to that. How about like Star Wars, only better? What are we talking about? <laughs> if you answered Battlefield Earth, you agree with John Travolta. That is how he described no. this movie. <laughs> yes. Oh my god. <laughs> I thought you were trolling. I thought you were trying to get me to say something anti-Semitic for no. a moment. I was very nervous. <laughs> no. Um, no, that's just what uh, John Travolta did it himself. Yes. Adele Dazim. Yeah. No one has <laughs> suffered persecution like the Jews, with the exception. <laughs> Of Scientologists 1,000 years in the future. <laughs> That's right. Uh, we are covering the film described by Jon Stewart as, quote, a cross between Star Wars and the smell of ass. It is finally <laughs> time for Battlefield Earth. I think like a good indication of whether or not you like a movie is how many times you have to pause, get up, walk around your house. <laughs> yeah, take a break. And then this take is, a break and then honestly, return to it. it's impossible to watch it in one sitting. It took me six sitting. hours to watch a two-hour movie. <laughs> yeah. It was really hard. And I don't, we, you know, this podcast is not about just unceremoniously crapping on movies, but I, I have to say this was a very hard one to find <laughs> things that I ultimately like about oh, it. Oh, there's some stuff I loved. Which we will definitely get to. I'm excited to hear about how at every stage they didn't just say, should we? (sighs) And just walk (laughs) away. Well, I'm about to make you as happy as a baby cyclo on a straight diet of Kerbango. Because here we go. This movie is directed by Roger Christian, written by Corey Mandel, and sort of... J.D. Shapiro, we'll get into that a little bit. Um, Also, naturally, the ghost of L. Ron Hubbard contributed. Um, It stars John Travolta, Barry Pepper, Forrest Whitaker, Kim Coates, and a whole bunch of other people you will wish were not a part of this movie because they all deserve better. It's based on a 1,000-plus page sci-fi novel by Scientology founder and all-around creep L. Ron Hubbard. Now, (sighs) the plot of this movie... Well, actually, Chris, do you think you could sum up the plot of this movie? Vaguely, I I had such a hard time focusing. Yeah. So Barry Pepper, Barry Pepper is uh, the last of the Mohicans. Sorry, <laughs> Barry Pepper is Johnny Goodboy Tyler. He's Let's Johnny Goodboy. Right. He's you. Johnny Utah. I kept calling him Johnny Utah because they're in color. Anyway, he's Johnny Goodboy, and he's part of a tr- like a what seems like a primitive tribe with cave paintings of dragons and stuff. And they're out of his dad. His dad, like, I feel like they cut an opening scene. I'm going to stop you. This is going to take 500 years. Uh, okay. So Barry it's the Pepper, year. Barry Pepper, <laughs> Barry Pepper le- leaves the cave. Realizes <laughs> there are th- it's a thousand years in the future. And there's these creatures called cyclos, which are just giant uh, dreadlocked humans. Basically, who have taken over Earth and enslaved mankind to mine gold through physical labor That's to fight their advance. not true. <laughs> What? Hold on, hold on. Let me get this out. So Barry Pepper, he just keeps trying to, he gets kidnapped, he keeps trying to escape. Meanwhile, John Travolta's like annoyed that he didn't get the promotion he wanted, basically. And so he's like, I don't want to spend five more cycles on this planet. And they're like, how about 50? Ah! And that literally jumpstarts the whole movie. Yeah. He and Barry Pepper end up kind of teaming up. And then Barry Pepper discovers perfectly intact 1,000-year-old Harrier jets mm-hmm. underneath Fort Knox or something. Yeah, it's Fort Knox. And in one week, they learn how to pilot jets. Yep, yep, yep. And then he leads the humans to destroy the Cyclo homeworld by teleporting what looks like a, a nuclear bomb to the Cyclo homeworld, destroying it. And uh, that's the movie. Uh, Chris, that was almost as bad as having to watch this movie. So for those of you who (laughs) fast forward during Chris's recap, it is the year 3000 and the Earth is lost to the alien race of cyclos. Humanity is enslaved by these gold thirsty tyrants who are unaware. Well, they're not actually like this isn't totally right either. They're not like having the humans mine the gold. The reason John Travolta is like, "Hmm, maybe humans can mine is because he figures out there is a deposit of gold gold bars in fort knox but it's surrounded by uranium deposits which is what like ignites their their stupid atmosphere thing it's why they have stuff stuck i love how they pick a weakness that's like it's their weakness but also uranium is bad for humans yeah 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 but that doesn't matter because humans will do anything for gold um so they're unaware that their man animals are about to ignite the rebellion of a lifetime that is the imdb synopsis and honestly Pretty good. That's that's about right. It is set in and around Denver for the most yep. part. The best reveal. <laughs> Human Processing Center. Denver. Denver. <laughs> it premiered May 10th, 2000 at Grauman's Chinese Theater and May 12th across the country. Now, on a hotly contested budget, which likely came in around $40 million, we will get into that a little bit later, the film grossed around $30 million worldwide. 
Oh, that's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. I thought the movie cost more. I'm glad it cost this amount. When you're looking this up, dear listeners, you may see the budget listed in the $70 million range. That's actually usually what shows up. That is not correct. And we will get to why it's not correct a little later in a fun reveal. It holds one of the lowest Rotten Tomatoes scores of all time at 3%, claiming the number 60 spot on their 100 worst movies of all time list. It won seven Razzies and was voted the worst film of the decade. Kudos to Barry Pepper, who did say that he would have shown up to accept his Razzie had he known he was going to win. (laughs) He did not show up. Yeah, The last thing you want to do is go to the Razzies and not win. win. Come on, guys, let them know. (laughs) I love Barry Pepper. He's a good actor. And I, yeah, I He's a good actor. Because it seemed like he gave his all to this movie, as you oh, should when you're God. watching something. Uh, I will end this little summary section with one of my favorite IMDb user reviews, which says, an absolute marvel of complete failure from top to bottom, and it's crazy boring. <laughs> That's is, the thing. It, it's I think so it's, its greatest sin is that it's it's pretty boring for most of the movie. Um, the last third is pretty fun. I like yeah. the, last, the last act. is fun. So you may be asking yourself as you're watching this film, how did this happen? Well, I'm going to let 1999 John Travolta talking to Charlie Rose explain it for me. You are said to have wanted to make a film about Hubbard's book, a science fiction. Well, yeah, you see, that, that has nothing to do with Scientology. The, the book, it's just a uh, book that he wrote. There's yeah, it's a science fiction uh, book. Uh, the be- maybe I think, if I'm not wrong, the, the best-selling science fiction book ever, uh, you know, or at least one of the top two or three. Uh, called Battlefield Earth, and it is exactly uh, what his creative uh, outflow was uh, before Scientology. But he wrote this in 1980, but uh, he also made a living in the 30s and 40s uh, writing all sorts of uh, fiction and and, uh, and science fiction. So a lot of stuff in there obviously isn't true. Um, okay, John Travolta, <laughs> I guess he got bad information because he thought, wow, look at this IP. Right, he was ahead of the game with Hollywood IP. I got this IP, best-selling science fiction book of all time. Elrond told me himself. Turns out, not a hundred percent true. No, as far as I can tell, it doesn't crack the top one hundred. Um, but you know, I, I didn't comb through everything, and and who knows? Obviously, things change with time. But it is not the best-selling sci-fi novel of all time. I can tell you that with all certainty. So unfortunately, in order to get into Battlefield Earth, we need to take a moment to talk about the man without whom Battlefield Earth would not be possible, and that is Lafayette Ronald Hubbard. Now, he is the founder of the Church of Scientology, their supreme leader, of course. And just like John Travolta said, he got his start writing sci-fi and pulp fiction, fun coincidence, in the 30s and 40s. He spends some time in the Navy. He sucks at it. He's removed from duty twice. I'm not going to get into a ton of L. Ron Hubbard's absolutely wacky and messed up life. Last podcast on the left has an amazing series on L. Ron Hubbard. Go listen to it if you want to deep dive into that wackadoo because he is, I mean, just wow. Um <laughs> 1950, he publishes Dianetics, uh, The Modern Science of Mental Health, and discovers there's one thing he excels at even more than kitschy sci-fi, and that is religion. Yeah. Um, You know the rest. Church of Scientology happens, but we're going to fast forward to 1982. Now, LRH has been enjoying his status as the head of the church for years, but he decides it's time to go back and do what he thinks he does best, which is Right. Right. Uh, He publishes Battlefield Earth in 1982, originally titled Men, the Endangered Species. Okay, honestly, better title, but go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, there's very little battling happening, honestly. It happens in the last, like, ten minutes. It's called Battlefield Denver, if anything. But (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the rest of the Earth is not featured in this movie. Yeah, exactly. It was his first sci-fi novel since his Pulp Fiction days in the 40s and was being billed as his long-awaited return to the genre. Now, he had been secluded for so long at this point that many in Scientology thought that he had dropped the body, as they say. But in fact, he was just working on this masterpiece, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Could you imagine being a Scientologist and like... Elrond gives you a thousand page text and is like, hey, can you give me notes on this? (laughs) (laughs) You're like, oh, this? This is, oh, oh, wow. I'm so glad I devoted my life to this religion. Imagine if Jesus is at the Last Supper and he's like, guys, can you just check (laughs) out my (laughs) Battlefield (laughs) Earth? (laughs) 
<laughs> hey guys, make sure it gets published, okay? Just hook a brother up. Okay, that's basically what's about to happen. So uh, he did equate his time writing Battlefield Earth to <laughs> Henry to- David Thoreau on Walden Pond. Oh God, um, just the hubris. <laughs> it's just amazing. It's incredible. This is a quote from an interview with Rocky Mountain News in 1983. Hubbard said, I have traveled through the Far East and sailed the high seas and did a few loops and some bi-winged planes and gliders in my day and drew upon these for stories. I also did a lot of research for other stories. He also said, I don't really outline. I just write. Well, he does sound like a screenwriter, to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> I mean, he sounds just like Philip Seymour Hoffman in The Master. What are you? A nuclear physicist? A theoretical gravitationalist? A, a man? A god? <laughs> like he just goes, Yeah, just, exactly. Uh, okay, so Battlefield Earth was positioned as the first step in a three-part journey to truly take over Hollywood and I think legitimize Scientology. This was right. their plan to like galvanize. Because like the thing is... It's not like there was ever a time when Scientology was legit. <laughs> like, no. That didn't happen. No. It has always been getting a side eye from everybody. And they've always been trying to figure out how to get their foot in the door, whether it's with Tom Cruise or John Travolta. Like the reason that they are, you know, approaching these actors, the reason they have a celebrity center in Elizabeth Hollywood. Moss. Oh, don't remind me about that one. Um, the reason that they go after these very public figures I think it is to sort of legitimize the church. Well, and some of their parents, like Giovanni Ribisi's parents are Scientologists. And so he yes. inherited it, is my understanding. Yes, there are people that are born into it. But in the early days, they did seem to be very much targeting actors, which makes sense. You know, get these Hollywood actors everybody loves, Tom Cruise, John Travolta, Kirstie Alley, you know, everybody, and have them sort of be ambassadors for the church. So this was step one. Lizzie, let me ask you something. You've got a moderately successful podcast that requires you to watch a boatload of movies, right? Yep. Okay, so how do you find time to cook healthy, affordable meals? I don't. I've been eating delicious, ready-to-eat meals from Factor. They're chef-crafted, dietitian approved and delivered right to my door. Okay, but do they have snacks and smoothies, the only two things that my daughter currently eats? Uh, they sure do. There are over 35 different options every week to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, veggie, and vegan for you and your vegan child. And the best part is when you sign up, you save money because Factor is less expensive than takeout. The napkin math checks out. I actually did it. Factor gets you a two-minute restaurant-quality meal on the table with no prep and no mess. Until my daughter throws it on my face. It's flexible for any schedule. Choose between 6 to 18 meals per week, and you can pause or reschedule anytime. So head to factormeals.com slash www50 and use code www50 to get 50% off. www50 at factormeals.com slash www50 to get 50% off. If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. Step two, which is my favorite thing, I think, that we're going to cover in this entire episode. Um, L. Ron Hubbard also wrote accompanying music for the book called, Great. obviously, Space Jazz. <laughs> um <laughs> Chick Corea played on it. Uh, no. He was a Scientologist. Yeah, that was a fun piece of information I found out. Space jazz. And, <laughs> space jazz. Space jazz. It is an adaptation of the book, and it is incredible. Um, I love it. As David said when we listened, if they did one thing right, it is space jazz. Space jazz. It's one million percent better than Battlefield Earth. Um, now, because I don't want to get sued by L. Ron Hubbard's estate, I am not going to play it here, but I am going to make Chris listen to my favorite banger, Turl, the security director. Well, it's labeled as Terry, the security director. So <laughs> very excited. David, God damn it. It's Turl. <laughs> All right, here we go. Here's the thing. I have to say, uh, That's I great. mean, just musically, uh, terrible, just atrocious. Um, very funny. And, <laughs> yeah. uh, 
it matches how Forrest Whitaker plays the character in the movie. I, like, it sounds weird, yes. but it's like very goofy, kind of campy. Yeah, there's um, a lot of big villainous laughs. It sounds like what would be playing in the background of the first Spirit Halloween store. Like, that's the best way yeah. that I can describe it. Um, yeah. It's, it's, you know, check it out. I don't really know how else to describe it, but the idea of having to take that seriously while talking to a, a, a large man that's the head of a religion, uh, you know. Oh, yeah, you better take it seriously or you're going to be daunting. scrubbing the basement with a toothbrush. Um, allegedly. Please don't sue us. So, as you might have guessed, the book received somewhat mixed reviews. Um, step three in this plan was, of course, a two-part Hollywood blockbuster starring Scientology darling John Travolta as Johnny Goodboy Tyler with LRH directly involved. Side note, L. Ron Hubbard's mouth kind of looks like the uh, wheelchair doctor with an exposed brain in Nightmare Before Christmas, <laughs> yeah. and I can't get it out of my head. Yeah. Um, okay. LRH envisioned himself being directly involved in the film's production, and he expected that it would naturally happen seamlessly, and within the next couple of years after releasing the novel. Like all movies, it'll happen naturally. <laughs> yeah, he was really wrong, because uh, remember, this is 1982. So yeah. despite pretty much everyone agreeing that Battlefield Earth was, in fact, not good, um, Scientology <laughs> sold the film rights to, I believe, Salem Productions. Now, they're originally planning on two films, which does make sense, because again, the book is a thousand pages long. Yeah, They brought on Abraham Polanski to write, a veteran Hollywood screenwriter. He, side note, was actually one of the victims of McCarthy's Blacklist, Ugh. interestingly enough. Poor bastard. Brought on Ken Anakin to direct, a veteran British TV and film director. Basically, they got way more legit people attached to this than they should have. Mm -hmm. But these guys also weren't at their peak at the time. Right. Now, production is set to begin in 1985. So to drum up some excitement one year earlier, especially since the book in Space Jazz didn't quite stick the landing, <laughs> Santa Monica PR firm Dateline Communications announced a nationwide contest. The first place prize was an all-expense-paid trip to the set and a walk-on part in the film. They also put up a 30-foot-tall blow-up recreation of the film's villain, Turl, on Hollywood Boulevard at Tower Records. So auditions begin in Denver, but LRH dies. Excuse me, drops his body in 1986, and the movie just kind of crumbles. That's partly due to the fact that John Travolta is adamantly trying to make this happen still. He starts shopping Battlefield Earth around Hollywood, but he doesn't really have the same star power that he did a couple of years earlier mm. due to a string of pretty rough flops. Not to mention nobody wanted to touch the Scientology of it all. Yeah. A little background on John Travolta. He broke onto the scene in the late 70s with the TV series Welcome Back, Cotter, and then blew up with roles in Saturday Night Fever and Grease. Of course, R.I.P. Olivia Newton-John. Very sad. But then he does a string of just stinkers they're incredibly bad he does stay in alive yeah this the very bad sequel to saturday night fever uh two of a kind trying to capitalize on his duo bringing olivia newton john back mm -hmm. perfect which made almost no money but that oh, incredible no. perfect's like a great great movie and i didn't say it was bad i just said that these were these were flops that movie flops. was too sexual for america at that point <laughs> <laughs> well it gave us a great meme now, he has a brief window of success with Look Who's Talking and then proceeds to make a bunch of garbage sequels to, to that. Mm -hmm. To his credit, John Travolta has admitted that he has a bad habit of turning down great roles. After Blowout, he was offered an officer and a gentleman, and he said, nah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's something that he apparently has done quite frequently, is saying no to roles that were massively successful. All that is to say, it's the early 90s and his career is in the toilet, thanks to those decisions. But all that changed in 1994 with a little help from a movie called Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction. Exactly. Now, famously, Travolta was not even Tarantino's first choice for the role. He was his second, listed uh, as a strong, strong, strong second choice if Michael Madsen couldn't do it. Now, I'm sure we'll do an episode on Pulp Fiction later, so I'm going to save diving into any more of that. So, side note, you will be happy to know that uh, the reason he took Get Shorty was allegedly Quentin Tarantino. He passed on it originally, mm. and Quentin Tarantino called him and said, you do not pass on this. Like, this is the one-two punch that you need after Pulp Fiction. Mm -hmm. You take Get Shorty, and he did. Also, I love that movie. It's a good movie. 
At 40 years old, Travolta finally hits his stride and cements his place on the A-list. And what does he do with the newfound clout that he has been working his entire life for, Chris? What does he do? Go to Denver. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. He pushes Battlefield Earth, the one thing he's been wanting to make for 20 years. So he actually manages to drum up enough interest for MGM to take on the project. And they hire their first writer. Yeah. No, no, no. He's, listen, he is putting all of his weight behind this. They hire their first writer, J.D. Shapiro. He is fired pretty much immediately for refusing to make the script changes that MGM and maybe also John Travolta wanted. Next, they lure in a young writer named Corey Mandel. Now, we're going to spend quite a bit of time with Corey this episode. Yeah, I, I know a little bit about Mr. Mandel. He's, he's a very interesting guy. And for those of you who want to hear more from him, I highly recommend that you go and listen to some of the videos that he has on YouTube. Yeah, he's very forthcoming. He's very honest. Despite only one writing credit to his name for a 1991 TV movie called Love Kills, Mandel was actually doing quite well in Hollywood at the time. He had five high-profile projects almost get made prior to this, including one with Ridley Scott attached, but he hadn't managed to get anything over the finish line yet. Chris, maybe you can speak to this. I think it's something people outside of the industry don't really know. It's very common. Yeah, so there are a lot of incredibly successful writers who have virtually no credits to their name. Right. The idea that the only way you make money is if your movie gets made is absurd. So scripts are sold all the time that never see the light of day. People are brought on to do uncredited or sometimes credited punch up work on scripts that are never made. Um, You know, uh, Tony Gilroy is someone who for a long time has had a number of projects, I'm sure, that have sold, et cetera, that never, you know, went or got made. And obviously now has become a much bigger director. John Michael McDonough is another person. Obviously, he had Garda and Calvary later, Martin McDonough's brother. So there there are a number of very successful people in Hollywood that have sold projects, lots of projects, big projects that have never seen the light of the day and they never will see the light of day and it's no reflection of their talent or ability or success. Once they've turned in the script, everything's entirely beyond their control. I mean, I spent a good part of the last two years working on a script for Amblin, adapting a horror short story, basically. And I'm hopeful that it gets made, but I'm not the director and I have no idea if that'll end up getting made and whether or not it does, I still got paid and my ego is still healthy. So it, yeah. you know, it has nothing to do with your success. It does not. And I just want to say that for anybody listening who's sort of not familiar with how a lot of this works, just because you don't see a ton of credits on somebody's IMDb page does not mean that they are not a success story. So I want to play you some clips from this interview with Corey. It's from a YouTube channel called Film Courage. And the full interview is really great. I highly recommend watching it. All the clips that you're going to hear of Corey today are from this interview. So I got a call from my agent saying that um, they wanted to meet you at MGM. Uh, John Travolta was a huge star at the time. Uh, And um, for Battlefield Earth. So I want you to go take the meeting. Do not say yes. To, do not take the project. But meet John Travolta and his producing partner. These are good relationships. And you're going to meet the head of the studio, head of MGM. So I went in and um, took the meeting. And um, they told me what I wanted to hear. And I wanted to hear it. And they told me this has nothing to do with Scientology. Um, you know, we had, a sci- we had a writer from Scientology and the script is completely unusable. Um, we're not following the book literally. In fact, John's going to play the main character, and the, the main character in the book is like a young, like 17-year-old or 18-year-old, and you know John's a middle-aged man at this point. Now, Chris, does John play the main character in this movie? Does he play the hero of the movie? Not the hero. Uh, no, he does not. He does not play Elrond's good boy in the end. He does not. Corey listens to his agent this time, and he does not take the gig. Now, unfortunately, MGM also decides to bail on the project, and it floats its way over to Fox. Just so everyone knows, that's called going into turnaround. So when a project is dumped by a studio, it goes, it goes quote, into turnaround, which means it's in limbo. And if another studio wants to pick it up, the studio that's released it usually makes them buy out whatever costs they've put into a project. So 
they should have paid Fox to take this at this point. Yeah. So, you know, MGM could say, well, we spent $100,000. I have no idea if that's the number on that first writer writing a draft. So if you want to take Battlefield Earth from us, you have to pay us $100,000. And that's why projects sometimes will get dumped at one studio and then get lost forever is they have money against them and no one wants to pay for that sunk cost. Well, people wanted to pick up Battlefield Earth and I can't tell you why. It gets picked up by Fox and they come knocking on Corey's door again. They tell him, you know what? We really don't care so much. It's like a fable, like three times. It literally is. It literally is. They come back again and they're like, you know what? We don't care that much about the book. Uh, We really want you to like We don't care that it's the number one most successful science fiction book of all time. We don't even care about that anymore. Yeah, we don't even care about the numbers. So they took him out to dinner and unfortunately... This time, he takes the gig. Let's hear Mm. from Corey. Now I want to be clear. My wife said, don't say yes. My agent said, don't say yes. My friend said, don't say yes. My golden retriever, Toby, said, don't say yes in his own golden retriever ways. So everyone else was saying, don't do it, but I did it. I've actually seen that interview with him before, and yeah, it's... Yeah. Well, why do you think he said yes? It's, I mean, I totally get it. I, for... (sighs) First of all, working as a writer is an incredibly insecure position to be in economically, as well as in terms of your own psychological state. You're constantly looking for validation that I'm not terrible at what I do. I'm good at what I do. And here's somebody saying, we think you're great at what you do. And we want basically what they're telling him, what what, at least what he wants to hear is you can write the sci-fi movie you want. It'll be called Battlefield Earth, but you can write your Star Wars and we'll go make it with John Travolta, one of the biggest stars in the world, as -hmm. the lead. And that can seem true, but ultimately it's just not the case. Even like if you were the director, it wouldn't be the case, but especially as just the writer, he has no control in this situation. No, which is exactly what we're about to see happens. Once you hand it over, you have no control. So one other fun uh, Fox tidbit, our friend, not actually our friend, but we wish he was, mega producer Bill Mechanic. Yes! Um, yes! yes! Bill the Mechanic's mechanic! back! <laughs> He's back. You might remember him from such episodes as Titanic and what were the other ones? He's most heavily featured in Titanic. Titanic was the big one, but I had met yeah. him before. I met him through a school thing and he was so cool. He's like... He's not trying to be cool. He's just like you're you meet him and you're like, oh my he's god. He's always the hero. This, he's the Mike Ermintrout of <laughs> Hollywood. Like that's what I'm convinced. He's he's awesome. Uh, I'm well, so glad he's making an appearance. Let's oh, hear he's, it. He's back for a little cameo here. Apparently, uh, he was super creeped out because while he was at Fox and this project was at Fox, John Travolta would send Scientologists to go chat him up at parties about how great the film was. And like, he's hated it. He was like, if they thought that was going to win me over. (laughs) I have a feeling this guy would, you know, unceremoniously slam the door on the world's cutest Mormon missionary. So God forbid the Scientologists show up. No, did not love it. Uh, So just as Corey is turning in his draft of the script, Fox also pulls out, uh, potentially realizing the hot turd that they had on their hands. So the script doesn't really get a traditional like development pass on it because all of the studios have pulled out. So who starts making all of the edits? Johnny T? That, that's a solid guess. It is not confirmed, but Mandel is not sure who did the major rewrites that end up taking place. He mentions there are Elrond's rumors. Ghost. <laughs> well, you're joking, but one of the rumors he says that, quote, spiritual advisors may have come in to help. Oh, so God. I don't know what that means. I was trying to find it out, but... To be clear, this is basically... That's how the Bible was written, just so everybody's clear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, okay. it's how Battlefield Earth gets <laughs> yeah. written. I think they pulled a bunch of Scientologists into a room together with John Travolta and his producing partner, and they basically rewrote the script. Yeah. For example, you may remember how Travolta was originally playing the lead, and they would kind of aged the lead up and all this. Yeah. Well, now he is playing head cyclo in charge... Turl and Turl's in every scene. That's what's kind of wild about the movie is like the stakes for one character, Barry Pepper, are the survival of the human species, life or death, every single scene. And then the stakes for John Travolta's character are the equivalent of 
Michael Scott getting promoted to the New York job from yes, Scranton, literally. Pennsylvania it, in the office. This movie is the office. This it's movie is the wild. office in the year 3000, but nowhere near as entertaining. So yeah. this this moment when the movie has gone into turnaround again, this is where we meet the Turl of our story. Oh. Ely Samaha. Ely and his company, Franchise Pictures, Oof. swoop in, calling yep. Travolta out of the blue and saying he's going to make Travolta's dreams come true. Meanwhile, Travolta's done interviews where he was like, I had no idea who this guy was, and neither did my manager. Notice, though, how like what Ely does to Travolta is what Travolta just did to Corey, where Travolta's yes. like, we're going to make your dreams come true. Yes. And Ely's like, we're going to make it. You know, it's the yeah. pyramid scheme of Hollywood. Well, pyramid scheme is an apt word for what we're getting into now. So Samaha's MO was to find a script that nobody in Hollywood wanted, a star's pet project, take it on, pay the star less than what they'd normally make. He would use international sales to make up the bulk of the profit, and he'd always shoot in Canada to save money. Oh, wait, what is this called? The Netflix method? Wow. Chris is burning himself out of all of his future jobs. Early Netflix. Early (laughs) Netflix. I would love to work with you. So he was behind the whole nine yards for Bruce Willis. This is one of the few that gave him some credibility in Hollywood because that one actually did pretty well. Get Carter for Sylvester Stallone, a longtime friend. The Pledge for Jack Nicholson and Sean Penn. The Big Kahuna for Kevin Spacey. 3,000 Miles to Graceland and many more. According to a New York Times article entitled The Samaha Formula, which is very interesting. I do recommend reading it. Quote, when everyone else said no or maybe or we'll see, Samaha said yes. So who is Ely Samaha? He is a Lebanese-American entrepreneur who got his start owning very successful dry cleaners, um, celebrity dry cleaners, and was a partner. Wait, hold on. Celebrity dry cleaners? That's what they were called because they were Hollywood dry cleaners. Uh-huh. And he learned something very important. He realized if he stayed open super late on the weekend and catered to Hollywood, he could make a killing. Quote, I charged more, but I learned something. People will pay for service. Then he becomes a partner in a club called the Roxbury on the Sunset Strip, where he also operated as... Is this uh, night at the Roxbury? I mean, it's a club called the Roxbury. I don't know if that was set at this particular club, but he operated allegedly as the fixer in the VIP room. If an A-list guest needed anything, anything... A movie greenlit? Anything, Ely got it for them. He's excellent at making connections, seemingly a very good salesman, very charming, such a good salesman, in fact, that his ex-wife is somehow Tia Carrera. So good job, Ely, I guess. So through the connections that he makes in the VIP room, he starts making some headway in Hollywood. He somehow manages to get his hands on the script for Battlefield Earth and thinks this is the movie that's going to take him to the next level. He and his partner in franchise pictures, Andrew Stevens, managed to strike a deal with William Morris Agency, then William Morris Agency, now WME. Mm -hmm. He will figure out how to make Battlefield Earth happen for Travolta, and they will unlock a ton of their clients for him and some of CAA's top clients. Those are the two biggest agencies ever, anywhere. And this is called packaging. So the agencies are basically saying... We'll put all of our stars in your movie. Typically, they would take a fee for doing that as well. The WGA has fought a long battle with them over this practice, which is anti-competitive and double dipping. Honestly, I think they were just like, please, God, please, if you can get John Travolta to stop talking about Battlefield Earth, we'll give you literally anyone on our client roster. Yeah. Like, We will throw <laughs> all of our people under the bus. Robert De Niro, to Wesley Snipes, up. we don't care. Have yeah. anyone you want. That's basically what happened. Mm-hmm. And he's like, sure, I'll, I'll make it happen. And of course, this is a goldmine for him because this is what he does. He wants these stars and their pet projects that no other companies want to finance. So at this point... Franchise Pictures has also somehow looped in Warner Brothers into a distribution deal for the film as long as franchise handles the bulk of the budget. Of course, as Ely said, if John wants to make this movie, what does he want to get paid? Because I do not pay anybody what they make. That is not my business plan. (laughs) Okay. Aye, aye, aye. Uh, This guy feels like a character in Nathan for you, but okay, let's keep going. (laughs) Well, um, Andrew Stevens, remember his partner in Franchise Pictures, manages to get the book rights to Battlefield Earth from Author Services, which is, I believe, Scientology's in-house 
like literary agency. I don't know. I've spent a long time trying to figure out what author services was. The author services. And, yeah, I guess. He said he was always afraid of eating the food that author services would offer him in meetings because he was afraid of being brainwashed. They did assure him, though, that this movie is guaranteed to be a success because there are seven million Scientologists and they will all see it at least three times. So without telling Stevens... Allegedly, without telling Stevens, here's where things get interesting. Samaha ropes in German company Entertainment, Entertainment, to co-finance and distribute their films in Europe and China in exchange for Entertainment footing 47% of the budget. Remember this, it's going to be very important later. Franchise gets a loan from an L.A. bank using the international deals and Warner Brothers distribution as collateral to quote Samaha, I'm going to have the party. And I own the billboards, so we'll have billboards for the movie. And I'll give away free dry cleaning and free meals at the Sunset Room on the radio. This movie will have great word of mouth. I love that he's producing like a giant science fiction epic, but the guy's still got his dry cleaning business in mind. Hell yeah, he does. (laughs) Listen, I kind of respect that. So to finish this quote, if I was a betting man, and I am... I would bet that this movie is going to change franchise pictures. On Battlefield Earth, I can't lose. Well, he's half right. Yeah. (laughs) It's going to change franchise franchise pictures. pictures. Yeah. (laughs) Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs, just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. All right. So they get into production in Montreal. Hey, it's finally happening. Everyone's so excited. John Travolta's sitting for four hours in his makeup chair. He's walking around on his stilts. He's having a great time. Roger Christian. So many stilts. So many stilts. Roger Christian comes on as the director. (sighs) Poor Roger Christian. Um, He was the second unit director on Phantom Menace. He's a very accomplished DP. He was the set decorator no, on the original yeah, Star most, Wars. Well, most famously, he's the Alien. Alien. He desi- yes. he came up with the industrial design look of all he of those sci-fi movies. He was the art movies. director. He for was Alien. the art director. He's the one who decided, let's take salvage from ships and army surplus and use that to create the interiors of these. Sh- like that's that look was him. I know he's a brilliant guy. Like yeah. this is not, and that's the thing. The people that worked on this movie, these are not untalented people. Like of that's not. and that's. The reason I think why we do this podcast is like movies are incredibly hard to make and it is not impossible for a bunch of very talented people to make Battlefield Earth, which is what happened. Yeah. So I read a bunch of interviews with crew members and it seemed like they kind of maybe all knew this was going to be a bit of a piece of shit. The supervising art director actually jumped ship partway through to work on Pluto Nash. God, Pluto Nash. I mean, I don't. That's a lateral move in my book. It's down. It might be down. I mean, this one at least has sort of like a a cult following. The one good thing anyone could say about this production was that I, I could not find a single bad thing anybody said about John Travolta. He is apparently very nice. Paid for his own catering truck to come and feed everybody. Forrest Whitaker is apparently a doll. Like, I don't think anybody had like all the actors seemed like lovely people. Like, I think they are, and like. They all clearly were giving it, no one's phoning it in for better or no. worse, you know? And like, I really, Kim Coates, one of my favorite character actors. He's great. Very excited to see him. Loved like Kim in a rocket launcher. Again, watch him all day. Barry Pepper, you just feel for him. Like the guy had just done Saving Private Ryan. He's I about know. to do the 25th hour. Like he's a talented actor. You also can't blame him for taking this part. Because, no, it's like, like a lead role in a John, a opposite role. John Travolta in what could be a giant sci-fi movie. Remember, this was supposed to be on the level of the Star Wars movies. Yeah, so basically, you know, everyone at the time that Star Wars was made, go listen to our episode on Star Wars, thought Star Wars was going to be a giant flop. It kind of always feels like a roll of the dice with these sci-fi movies. And with Barry, it's like, hey, it's going to be a $40 million movie. You're the lead. They're pitching this as a Star Wars-like movie. We've just had The Phantom Menace come out. Like, these are, even if that is not a necessarily beloved movie, it was by no means a flop. Like, this is... No, it was very successful. This is still, yeah, a chance to be part of a massive, massive 
massive franchise is what he's thinking. And remember, this is a two-picture thing. Uh, right. It's still staying, sticking around as a two-picture deal. Now, you may have noticed, Chris, that every angle in this movie... Is a Dutch angle. Is a Dutch angle, yes. Um, Which is when the camera's tilted. Yeah. That not a, there's like one straight-on shot like the frame is tilted, this meaning like the thing. left side of the frame is higher than the right side or vice versa. It is so distracting. I was texting David about it's it constantly insane. while I was watching it. It's absolutely insane. Allegedly, unfortunately, this was Roger Christian's idea, um, supposedly to make it feel more like a graphic novel. I don't really know. Uh, I know that the transitions in this movie are also insane. They like, are it, interior expanding screen wipes. It, it is, looks like a PowerPoint presentation <laughs> from like it's 1999. It's a, it's a tough look. It's a little weird. I think it looks better than a PowerPoint presentation. No. I think it matches the graphic novel idea of like, oh, it's a, it's kind of a page turn, maybe, is what sure. they were going for. I didn't find it that as distracting as I think you did. I got used to that. I was fine with it. I mean, you let it wash over you. So, you know, who knows what the sort of creative reasoning behind those decisions were. All that aside, the budget on this movie was nowhere near what they had been promised. They had almost no money for lighting. So they were using like any trick in the book that they could to offset costs. Uh, the cinematographer for this said this was literally the smallest lighting budget of any movie he had ever, ever worked on. Yeah. Now, normally on a movie we're talking about on what went wrong, the budget is ballooning, right? It's mm -hmm. out of control. Because usually you have a studio behind it that's got a hose full of money sure. that they can pump at it if they need to. Right. We don't have that here. And in no. fact, on Battlefield Earth, the budget is shrinking. According to director Roger Christian in a 20th anniversary interview with Newsweek, he really only had about 20, 21 million dollars total to make Oof. this movie. That's an yeah. impossible number, even exactly. for back then. So 10 million when he went to Montreal to actually make it. And then the rest was for the special effects. And I think we have to assume like 99% of that went to the wigs and their little sausage paws, <laughs> which I loved. Yeah, the wigs budget, the prosthetic tongue for that one woman when she makes That's her That's Kelly lewd. Preston, by yeah. the way. Oh, that That's is. That's John Travolta's wife. Yeah. Oh, my God. I didn't even, who had just done Jerry Maguire and she's so good in that movie. She's um, great. Yeah, it's Kelly uh, Preston. Yeah, so I, I you I feel like when you watch it for the first two thirds of the movie, to be blunt, like the VFX look pretty bad. Um, They're terrible. The the whole movie just doesn't look that great. I actually like I think they pumped all their money into the third act, and I actually thought the third act looked like it took a sizable jump. I thought the movie just was a lot better in the third act. Right. Well, it's also because like they're working with no money, they have to figure out how to stretch it. And also, I'm joking about the wigs and the makeup and prosthetics, but that cost a shit ton. Oh no, of that's money. the thing. It's like even to do that level, it's all about labor. How many like you have dozens and dozens of people who have to get made up for hours. So if you have to put everyone in a chair at 6 a.m. to be ready for a 10 a.m. to start shooting, you have to have dozens and dozens and dozens. In they equal, didn't even have greater. that many makeup Ugh. artists. So what they were doing was like an assembly line on the Cyclos where they would literally be like one person is like <laughs> spraying you with glue and shoving you down. David, can you please write a song the in the style of space jazz that's called Cyclo Assembly Line? Because that <laughs> yes. would be the best. Oh, I feel so bad for everyone trying to make this movie work. I know. For that well, number. for what it's worth, I think they actually had a good time. But yes, it's, it's kind of a uh, Roger Corman approach at that point. You know, it it one hundred percent is. So in that same article that they asked uh, Christian Roger Christian what he thinks when he hears Battlefield Earth, and his response was a huge achievement by a crew of dedicated professionals who pulled it off for a very small budget. Yeah. Which is true. They had almost no money for this thing. Now, yep. you might be remembering, huh, that's so weird. I thought the budget was around $70 million. Where did it all go? Well, we're going to get to that. So it's almost premiere time. John Travolta is stoked. He says, I've been a grease toy, a Barbarino toy, a Saturday Night Fever toy, a plate, a towel, a watch, a blanket. But I'm most excited about the Turtle doll. Oh, John. Oh, man. <sighs> the movie premieres on May 10th uh, at Grauman's Chinese Theater. Quentin Tarantino reportedly enjoyed it, but it's unclear if he was laughing with it or at it. Needless to say, it gets absolutely shredded by critics. And, I mean, audiences are just kind of like, wow, that was bad and weird. Critics are like, 
this is the worst thing I've ever seen. And it just viciously yeah. shredding it. It grosses $11 million on opening weekend, and it just goes downhill from there. But here's where the fun really begins. So remember the German company that agreed to pay 47% of the budget, Chris? Yes, entertainment. Entertainment, yeah. So it turns out Ely was running, oh, a bit of a scam. Now, the higher he told them the budget was, the more it actually shrank. Remember his quote on Battlefield Earth, I can't lose. That may be because he had set up a scam so he literally could not lose. In total, Franchise Pictures ran this budget padding scam on 17 films, according to the LA Times. Entertainment said they'd paid over $115 million more than they should have. Not for Battlefield Earth alone, for all of them. Wait, what? Listen, if you watched Battlefield Earth, this all adds up because it looks like it cost $10. In 2004, a jury ruled that Franchise Pictures owed entertainment over $77 million. I saw some other numbers that were upwards of $120 million owed in damages, which naturally Franchise Pictures did not have. Franchise Pictures files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And to quote Samaha's producing partner, Andrew Stevens, My analogy of being with Ely is he was an elephant with diarrhea and I had a demi-tasse spoon to run behind him and try to scoop up the shit. And no matter how fast I scooped, there was way too much shit. (laughs) Oh, my God. Oh, is Ely still alive? Oh, yeah, buddy. He has not disappeared from Hollywood. He is a co-owner in the TCL Theater, formerly Grauman's Chinese Theater, several nightclubs around L.A., and... According to a Deadline article from September 23rd, 2021, he's getting back into the production and distribution game. Yeah, baby! Yeah, it's streaming. <laughs> it's the Wild West. I'll just interject briefly. If anybody thinks that the Ely model is unusual, it's not only common, but there's actually another producer that's been doing the same thing. And there's a great article in the Los Angeles Times on a man. His name is Randall Emmett. Yeah, I know Randall Emmett as Lala's boyfriend on Vanderpump Rules. <laughs> Former boyfriend. Um, uh, yeah, so exactly. Randall Emmett is a producer and director who mm-hmm. is... A, uh, read the article. I mean, trigger warning, uh, sexual uh, assault and harassment um, in the article. Basically, you may have noticed over the last 10 to 15 years uh, a growing crop of movies that... I can't remember what they call them. They go straight to Redbox or like straight to VOD. Straight to Redbox action films starring aging stars. Bruce Willis being the primary driver. He's done the most, Uh but not just him. I mean, John Malkovich, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino. um, Just it's really kind of hard to watch. Truly great actors. And the way that the scam works is the actors actually do get paid a good amount for like two days work so they can keep the fee contained And then they sell the rights to foreign distributors saying Bruce Willis is in our movie, even though it's only for two days, and they can get 12, 15, 20 million dollars. They go shoot the movie in like 14 days, do the bare bones. You know, they get again, they exploit people who want to work in Hollywood and say, well, this is an opportunity to go work on a Bruce Willis movie or to go work on an Al Pacino movie. And they bring them in and either underpay them or they fail to pay them in some instances. And then they file for bankruptcy. It's the same model. Go check out the really great reporting by the Los Angeles Times on Randall Emmett. It's very worth reading. And Chris is 100% right. This is absolutely the same model. You don't get Randall Emmett without Ely Samaha. Let's end back with Corey Mandel, who, by the way, is a very successful screenwriting teacher now and who somehow, after all this mess, has managed to take a very valuable lesson from Battlefield Earth. I didn't want the deals to end. And I just kept taking deals that in my soul I knew I shouldn't be taking. But I did. And if you do that over time, it's going to lead to Battlefield Earth. If you just keep reacting and you don't find your integrity in your center and you just give your power to the industry and do whatever it takes to keep getting work, it's going to end terribly. I feel like I completely deserved Battlefield Earth. It was the, I was just making reactive fear-based decisions and that's what it leads you to. And I was able to talk myself into taking that project. Yes, I didn't know Fox 2000 would drop out. I had no idea about franchise films. There was a lot I couldn't foresee, but I knew in my heart that I should say no. And I said yes. So I own that and I deserve that. Yeah, I think Corey's spot on because I will say from 
obviously limited, but real experience, the most difficult thing to do in Hollywood is say no to the bad opportunities. And by bad, I don't necessarily mean like Battlefield Earth bad, but just the projects that deep down in your heart, you think, ah, this, I don't think this is right for me. Mm-hmm. I don't think this is the right project for me because it's your job and it's really hard to balance. It's my job. It's a job. I need to put food on the table. I need to pay my mortgage. And, but it's also a representation of me and who I am and my work. And that's really tough and tricky. And I, I try not to judge anyone for their professional choices. People, why would they do that movie? Who knows? You don't know. You don't know what the first draft of the script was. You don't know what was going on in their life, why they needed payment. I don't go to your job and ask you why you repaired that car or why you gave a massage to that person or why you gave him surgery. Like, go f*** yourself. (laughs) Why did you do? Why did Corey write Battlefield Earth? He just told you. It's because he was making, you know, fear-based choices. It takes a lot of courage uh, or a lot of privilege to be able to say no to things. And for, for speaking from experience, I have a little bit of privilege in that my I have a spouse that works full time and that, you know, so now we couldn't just live off of her income. But like if I go six months without doing anything in terms of the economic return, that's not the end of the world. Uh, not everyone has that opportunity. I, I've been able to turn down Battlefield Earth. I was offered the Battlefield Earth 2. And I should have said God, I yes. would love to write Battlefield uh, Earth 2. <laughs> it's actually so, I'm writing it on spec at this point. <laughs> <laughs> Let's do it. I'm in. Uh, I guess I'll end here. Obviously, there was not a Battlefield Earth 2. And there won't be one until Chris and I write it. Yep. Um, so that's why at the end of the movie, John Travolta is... Uh, is left standing in his gold cage in because that's only about cage. Half, <laughs> halfway through the incredible number one top selling best novel of all time that L. Ron Hubbard wrote. So that's Battlefield Earth. Um, do you know where the how like where it goes from there? I do. Uh, well, I, I I should say I read the synopsis. I think I retained that information for about five minutes and then immediately shook it loose from Got my it. brain. Um, Got it. It's uh, there's like it's a lot of it's a lot of like office politics type stuff. It's yeah. um, there's more stuff where they like, you know, successfully get the cyclos out. And then there's like other people that show up and they want restitution because they're mad at the cyclos. And Barry Pepper is like, I just want to live in the woods. And then everybody's on Earth is like, He's no, Bill Johnny, Cosby. good boy. <laughs> God, I hope not. <laughs> Everybody on Earth is like, no, no, you you got to come out here and be a hero. Johnny, good boy, Tyler. And then he like disappears into the woods and leaves his wife and family or something. So I I don't know. I could be making that up. I hope that's what it is. Well, we'll never know because I will never read that book. Um, no. <sighs> well, All right. What a journey. What a journey. That's a, That wraps up our return to what went wrong. I guess if I have to pick one thing that went right. Yeah, we got to do our end segment. Our famous cherry on top. What went right. I do love the Kerbango. And I am a huge fan of Kelly Preston's uh, cameo in this movie. If you watch the movie and you notice a woman with just a repulsively long tongue. And um, long forehead. And giant forehead. Yeah, they all have like comb overs. I don't understand the hair in this. But anyway, it is Kelly Preston. um, And it's just it's like it's one of the brief moments of fun in this absolute just funeral dirge of a movie (laughs) i (laughs) I enjoyed it for me what went like i felt like where they landed in the third act was fun like it the the first two-thirds of the movie stretching half of a book over one movie if they maybe tried to pack it all into one i don't know the third act i thought i had a good time i actually like i don't fault any of the cast they were saying insane things no i appreciated all the efforts they put into it i appreciated forrest whitaker who seemed like he was having fun yeah and just the commitment like the amount of hair and makeup plus dentures that they were obviously wearing for their bad teeth plus contact lenses don't forget their little sausage paws And I loved uh, the director's comment on what the movie was because every movie yeah. is a miracle accomplishment, whether or not it's a success. So, 
Also, I'm sure we'll get comments on this. I, we're not going to go into how this movie rips off the Matrix. It rips it off like every so, other oh shot. God. There's every just too many. scene is a bad Matrix ripoff. Yes, we know. We get yes, it. we know they did it in post because Matrix came out in 1999 and yeah. they were already and in the post Harrier on this. Jets are from True Lies. And the, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. We yeah, get yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Look, the whole thing's a ripoff. And uh, Star Wars is the best. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That wraps up our first return episode for what went wrong like lizzie said bi-weekly releases going forward yes but please send us suggestions we really really enjoyed going through all of your messages and the time that we took off it genuinely genuinely it warmed my heart hearing how many of you have enjoyed this show and how it kept some of you company during the last couple of years that we've had we really appreciate that and we're taking your suggestions. We're going back through. We're going to try and hit them. Just just keep talking to us. We are going to specifically be covering the first movie that I wrote and directed, which is called Worm, in the next few weeks because it's going to go on Hulu in October. And by the way, that's spelled W-Y-R-M, not W-O-R-M. So if you guys want to check that out before the episode airs, it's available on Amazon and iTunes and Google. And I think it's pretty good. It's not perfect, but 88% on Rotten Tomatoes with a good number of reviews, 3.5 on Letterboxd. I don't think it's a waste of your time. You should check it out and I can give you truly all the first person details on all the fun stuff that went wrong. That's it for this episode. We will be back in two weeks with our next new episode and we will talk to you then. What Went Wrong is a Sad Boom podcast presented by Lizzie Bassett and Chris Winterbauer. Editing and music by David Bowman, with cover art from Euthana Uos. 